In this episode, I was a guest on the Money Advantage podcast with Bruce and Rachel. We had fun talking about the noise that exists in the infinite banking world, policy construct. They did a live stream on Facebook and YouTube, and I had fun. I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you for listening. Good morning, and welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. This is Rachel Marshall, along with my co-host, Bruce Wayner, and we have special guest James Nethery with us on the show today. Good morning, James. Good morning, Rachel. How are you? Good. Good. Glad to have you on the show. Bruce, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Rachel. You know, the, this is um, this is kind of a different type of podcast for us today. Uh, James and I have known each other for probably close to 10 years, and um uh, really, kind of the way you and I got involved, uh, we were get we were running those Freedom Advisor uh, events where we were trying to do collaborative efforts to actually improve the industry as a whole. And mm-hmm. James was a part of that. Uh, James has been a part of a lot of really really good things. And he and I run into each other at a lot of different conferences, a lot of different doing a lot of different good work. And um, He's a he's a really a deep thinker. James is a person of of a few words until you get him going on the subjects that he loves, and he loves this subject. And uh, I I think we have a lot in common as far as that goes. I have a great respect for him, and uh, I hope our listeners hang in there today and and really listen to what we're saying because we really want people to understand. Uh, the the ins and outs in an educational way of why you would uh, design inf- infinite banking policies in a certain way. Bruce, that was very nice. That was that was so nice. We should hang out more often. Yeah. All right, buddy. We'll do that. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Now, James, where are you located? I actually don't know. I think you're in Texas. Am I right? Yes, you're right. Twenty oh, miles awesome. south of Fort Worth, Rachel. Oh, awesome. Alvarado, Texas, the world oh, headquarters. Excellent. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's just, for you listening today, um, if you're jumping into this conversation, I just want to set up the context for what we're talking about. So you've heard us talk about policy design and infinite banking on a regular basis. And I think there can be this temptation for somebody to say, hey, I'm interested in infinite banking. I want the safety. I want the liquidity. I want the growth. I want this place to store cash. I want to be able to borrow against my policy, get returns in two places at the same time. I want the death benefit. I want to be able to use it for a legacy transfer tool. I want to be able to borrow and pay back on my own terms. But can I make it better? And so there's this question that kind of says, hey, well, if I can get a lot of early liquidity, can I get more early liquidity? And if I can take a policy loan, can I just go ahead and you know put that check in today and take out a check tomorrow and max maximize or get these max policy loans and almost redline a policy? And so this can lead to questions and people looking at, well, how do we improve upon this already great concept of infinite banking? And that can lead somebody down the trail of discovering or learning about or hearing about or being persuaded that a 1090 policy design is the only and best way to have infinite banking. And there are lots of concerns with that. So if you are one of those people who said, I'm really liking this idea of infinite banking, now I'm hearing about 1090 policy design, that sounds like exactly what I want to go for. I would encourage you to stop and listen to this show today just tune in and really understand what 
the policy design means. We're going to have a fabulous conversation, almost a panel discussion about this. And I really want to make sure that you understand what you're getting into so that you can make the best decision and have a policy that is on solid ground and not shifting sand. Now, we have James Nethery joining us today. James is also a fellow IBC thought leader. He's with the Nelson Nash Institute. He's a certified IBC practitioner. He's also the executive producer of a documentary that was a best-selling documentary on the infinite banking concept. That's called Banking with Life. And actually, I do have those videos. We got, I, I think, the whole caseload of them way back when we were first learning about infinite banking. And so I remember seeing you on those videos, and that was my first introduction. This is probably nine-ish years ago now. So I've known of you too for a long time, James. So um, we're, we're going to be talking about this today and you are in for a treat. So let's just go ahead and start off. Um, I mean, we can kind of go any direction. I kind of wanted to first set up what is IBC and then um, why do people look at these skinny base or 1090 policy designs in the first place? James, what are you seeing in this whole avenue right now? <laughs> you know, Rachel, I, uh, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, even, you know, be a guest, be invited to participate here. <clears throat> um, I spoke one time at the uh, Nelson Nash Institute. It's probably four or five years ago, and I referred to these types of illustrations as Frankenstein policies. And I, I believe that presentation is available in the big wide world. I know it's available to or, uh, practitioners, you know, through the Nelson Nash Institute. Um, and and the reason I did that is because it's pretty natural. I see it seems to be very natural for um, someone to want to improve Nelson's work. You know, they look at sixty forty. And specifically speaking about equipment financing in his first book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And y'all know as well as I do, he said many times, Nelson, that if he were to rewrite the book, he would not put illustrations in the book because they serve uh, really uh, as, a, as a point of confusion. You know, you cannot look at a life insurance illustration, the tabular detail where all the numbers are, and make a coherent decision. You know, as a purchaser, as a consumer, based solely on those numbers. Um, but and I we think talk about that too. And for somebody who's saying, well, why in the world can't you? I mean, I thought that was how I make decisions. That's a projection of what we expect to happen. That's not a guarantee of performance. And so that's something that's really key to hear. And if, if you're hearing for the first time, you can't make decisions about purchasing a policy based on the illustration Go ahead and drop your questions in the chat wherever you're watching as well. So go ahead, James. Perfect. And so I discovered early on, you know, because I wrote, I wrote policies that, you know, squeeze down the base and the uh, term and, you know, using the term to raise the death benefit, to avoid the max, so you can have a high PUA. There's no question that um, in Nelson's construct of 6040, the reader, the listener, the viewer, the consumer should know why Nelson did that. You know, he didn't do it uh, because 6040 was, you know, a magical number, right? Um, there's been several changes in the CSO tables of the life insurance industry. Um, interest rates have come down. Dividends have come down. He illustrated the uh, first illustration, number one, four years of premium. And, and just on that illustration alone, Back in the day, 
within the Nelson Nash Institute, even before the Nelson Nash Institute was at the think tanks that Nelson held, you know, people automatically assumed that 60-40 was the only way, quote unquote, the way to structure a policy. And then there's a lot of assumptions that, well, you should only pay four years, right? Because that's what Nelson illustrated in number one. And then it continued, you know, we should do a reduce paid up in year seven, which is only available on whole life insurance, right? It's a non-forfeiture guarantee that is not available on universal life, which is another uh, easy distraction mm-hmm. where, you know, the agent, I think the in the agent's heart of hearts, you know, they want to do the right thing. So they think that this is right. Squeezing the base down to others who could have a high PUA or high cash value, so a high immediate loan value. Um, but then they don't realize what they're sacrificing in the future on those policies. And there's absolutely yeah. a trade-off, right? Well, and what's really interesting is I've heard multiple reasons. And I love how you just said the agent usually is doing this for the right reasons. And I think people who are looking to get into infinite banking also do all these same things for the right reasons. And I think some of those reasons can be, I want more early liquidity. I don't want only 70% liquidity in year one. I want 90 or 92 or 97 or however much I can get of the value of the dollars that I put into premiums in year one, how much can I access of that right away? And I think the other thing that I hear sometimes is agents will say, well, more commission is paid on base premium and less on PUAs. And so there will be this argument that says the only reason an agent is going to put a higher base policy in place is because they want to get paid more which is just frankly also not true. I think it is true that you are paid more on a base commission than on paid up additions, but that is not the only reason or it's not an ulterior motive for somebody to design a prop, uh, policy properly. I completely agree. I think that that is, uh, you know, and fundamentally, I must say that the uh, this idea uh, of squeezing the base down to nothing violates all four fundamental rules that Nelson laid out very simply for us. Number one, think long range. If Mm -hmm. I have to access the majority of my premium, i.e. through cash value and loans, I'm thinking short term. If I'm building that policy to have liquidity in year one, two, or three at a certain level, I'm thinking short term, which Mm -hmm. fits into all of the average all-Americans thinking, can't think past next week. Right, and then... I agree. I'm just going to just elaborate on that for a second, because I think the first challenge is somebody who's just looking for an immediate turnaround of cash is really just thinking about, well, how do I use this as like a magic pill to get better returns in my other investments? And the challenge is life insurance is meant to be thought of as not only your full life, but even generations past you. It is really a long term what a concept life insurance it's going to mirror your life and then Mm -hmm. leave a benefit to the next generation or whomever you love and care about but look you are afraid to capitalize you are afraid to pay you are afraid to pay a premium if you have to have access to 100 of it and i'm not disparaging i'm not uh saying that that's not important to have capital have access to capital Right. But let me tell you what, that thinking is flawed thinking. The whole idea is flawed 
thinking. So it's just a continuation of flawed thinking. I'm violating these four fundamentals. You know, I'm, I'm not thinking long range. I'm afraid to capitalize. Um, and then don't steal the peas. You know what's going to come right after I've got to get 90, 95% of my cash value in year one or two is like, oh, well, I'm in control. Do I really have to make the loan repayments? Can I just pay interest only? Unscheduled, you know, just periodically, sporadically throw money at it if, you know, I desire. That's a continuation of flawed thinking. The first thing that the people are going to do that get caught up in that, my opinion, is they're going to lower the premium, right? And then they're going to quit paying their loans. They're going to quit paying interest. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's going to do that. I'm just saying that that's a natural tendency. That's a continuation of the flaw of thinking. And then if I, let me add this too, Rachel, if I have to go borrow money through a HELOC or any other third-party lender to fund a policy to pay a premium, am I becoming my own banker? Am I, am I embracing the independence of third-party lending or am I embracing the, that relationship of being dependent upon the third-party lender? You know, and that's dependency. No question. Yeah. No question. And if I say, go back to the commissions that you brought up, it's like, if if I can't communicate the power of the infinite banking concept as an agent or an advisor, I have an opportunity to improve, right? So if I have to boil it down to a commoditization of a product or numbers on a page and say, look, it, and, and let me also interject here. If you can do 90-10, you can do 97-3. And if someone says you can't, they're less than honest. Just because the companies that they prefer to use to illustrate the 90-10 will only allow 10 times to the PUA premium to the PUA compared to the base. That doesn't mean that uh, you can't do it elsewhere with legitimate life insurance companies. And if that's true, and it is, why wouldn't we go to 98-2 or 99-1? Mm-hmm. Right. OK. Um, so it's, it makes it a real easy, quote unquote, sell for me as an agent or advisor, because, you know, I got to get paid. Right. And there's three entities in this whole uh, transaction of purchasing life insurance. There's the owner the you know, is typically the payer, the insurers, typically the payer and the owner and the life insurance company. Right. But the owner, the insurance company, and the agent, right? Well, at 90-10, right, the, uh, the agent's going to be profitable. The life insurance company is going to be profitable. And as W.C. Fields, and I understand I'm dating myself, says, well, two out of three ain't bad. At whose expense is the agent profiting from? It's the consumer, right? And why? Why do you say that, James? Because if you take these policies out, the further out you go, the less uh, – the less effective or the less valuable they become, they serve the owner less and less, right? If you continue these policies. So, yes. And that's the problems on the horizon. I I love how you started with the four rules. And I think if somebody is going to be intellectually honest and they're going to be committed to their own long-term success, we will then do as Nelson taught, we will think long-term and we will not be afraid to capitalize. No one's afraid to capitalize buying the house of their dreams, buying uh, the vacation that they really want. We're not afraid to capitalize the things that we value. And life insurance should be one of the things that we capitalize the most because we most value what it can do for us in the future. 
And sometimes this takes a little bit of um, thinking, I want to say progressive, but that's not the word I'm looking for. That's going to have the wrong connotation. Thinking though down the line, this logical thinking of what happens if I do this step and then this step results and this step and what is the end result of all of those steps? And what's really interesting is if you capitalize properly, you will have a policy that serves you really well in the future that's going to have more dividend growth. It's going to have higher, um, it's going to have a higher death benefit. You're going to have a greater legacy you're going to be able to leave with this policy. And if you capitalize it well in the beginning, the the result is going to be so much more valuable for you. So think long-term, capitalize properly. And you mentioned don't steal the piece. For someone who has not read the book, and I do highly recommend you go to read Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. I have it on um, audio. Otherwise, I'd hold it up right now. But on the front is a uh, turning thing for a safe. What do you call that turning? <laughs> it's, it's a dial. The combination uh, dial. <laughs> yes. Uh, the combination dial. Yes. For a safe. And it says Becoming Your Own Banker. Nelson Nash wrote it. It's, I think, in the fifth edition right, right now. It is a fabulous way to understand this infinite banking concept. And specifically, don't steal the peas. He equates it to being a grocery store owner and having your cans of peas on the shelf. And the grocery store owner could say, well, it's cheaper for me just to take them out of the back room instead of paying for them at the cash register. And he says, if you do that, you will have to sell your product for a higher cost or higher price in order to be the same amount profitable and you will kill your profitability by stealing out of the back end. And so really that's that's what we're talking about making sure Rachel, that you let me, pay your Go ahead. Let me let me add some of that. That that is the that is the obvious one. But with the one that's not obvious and you know James and I knew Nelson personally and had very long conversations with him. Um, but what else what that also is talking about human nature and Nelson knew about human nature. And that's what James is talking about also when he's talking about people that want to design these very skinny policies, because Nelson knows that human nature is going to um, to take the easy way out. You know, that's why he talked yes. about Parkinson's law, so on and so forth. So what what also that it, what he's saying about that is if the workers see you taking the peas as the owner out the back door, they're also going to steal the peas. Oh, and that right. and that is lost in that interpretation quite often. And uh, I actually own, own a restaurant. I actually have a buddy that's in the restaurant business. And he taught me that at the very beginning when I when I early went to the restaurant with him. Not only did he pay for his dinner in front of everybody, he made a big production of it. You know, I mean, he, I mean, he, had, he didn't stand up and say, I'm paying. But I mean, he took the credit card and said, here this is for our dinner tonight, you know, and then he would go in the back and he would, he would grab a soda for somebody and he would immediately pay for it. It's human nature. And that is what the, James is talking about. And that's what Nelson is talking about by stealing the peas is about human nature. He's trying to help people overcome their human nature of taking the easy way out. That's so good. Thank you for sharing that whole piece because how that then equates over to infinite banking would be just as James, you were talking about, I take a policy loan because I can, because it's accessible to me. And the easy way out is, eh, I don't really need to repay that. I don't need to replenish the capital. I don't want to pay back the full principal. I, I am just going to leave this policy loan outstanding. And certainly you have the right to do that. The real question comes down to what is the best way to think 
so that you can have your policy function most effectively for you forever. And it's certainly not taking the easy way out. It is being an honest banker and repaying yourself fully. And then, so the the rules that you would have is think long-term, capitalize fully, repay your policy loans. And then why would you need to borrow from another source to repay if you want this to function correctly? The converse of what you said then, James, is let's make sure that we capitalize a policy loan with our actual cash flow, the profit that we have left over in our daily life, which then means we have to spend less than we make so that we have money that we are saving that we can put over into a life insurance policy. Mm, that implies discipline, Rachel. A lot. <clears throat> right. So, so I guess it, we're only talking to disciplined people then. <laughs> right. I mean, if you don't have discipline, it won't help. But, um, you know, and, and I, I agree. And you mentioned earlier, there's a higher death benefit. I don't, I don't want to, I want to go back to that because that is so true. You know, when you you just about have to use a blended P-Way rider where it blends a one-year term with the paid-up additions rider, whatever the insurance companies call their riders, okay? So when you're saying, just just for someone listening, in order to get the skinny base policy and drag down the base as low as possible, get the most PUAs, you have the most early liquidity, in order to do that, it usually requires a blended term rider. I just wanted to clarify where, where that fits. As opposed to uh, using a, if you use term to raise the death benefit to avoid the modified endowment contract, that's the, if, so if you use term, there's really only two ways. You use a standalone term rider or a blended PUA rider, right? The blended PUA riders, I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. These are just products, right? But they're all created by the life insurance companies. So, um, Okay. Every year that we are alive, and every year we get closer and closer to, to mortality. Mm-hmm. So the death benefit goes up, right? I mean, the cost of the death benefit goes up. It's just, you know, if I buy term when I'm 30, I can buy the same amount of term when I'm 40, and I'm going to pay a higher premium for that because I'm closer to mortality. It's not rocket science, science right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So in a blended PUA, the one-year term rider, the death benefit, the cost of the death benefit goes up. Every year. And it's typically paid for, companies are different, it's typically paid for from the dividends, which are not guaranteed. And here we are in the lowest interest rate environment ever, 6,000 years of recorded history, right? Um, or, and, or combination. So it's paid for the death benefit, the blended death benefit, the blended term and PUA, that death benefit is paid for with a non-guaranteed dividend and or surrenders of the PUA. All right. And so the cost of the death benefit is going up. The more you have it, the longer you have it on there. And the dividend with some of these popular companies that that whole construct is used uh, to promote, just, just Google up their dividend history. It's not uh, esoteric. It's not hidden. The dividends are going to go down. Now think about that. The cost of the term's going up. The dividend, what you're paying for that term with, the dividend is going down. And then the more you do that, the more you front load a policy, quote unquote, pay a high premium through the PUA and the blended rider, you can't pay that high premium for a long duration, right? You, you can't. So 
and it's the same argument that we used to talk about all the time, you know, Bruce, back in the day. It's like, why would you do a reduced paid up, an RPU in year seven? Why would I reduce the death benefit to have the policy paid up on a guaranteed basis? Why would I do that when it took five to seven years to hit that curve of efficiency? Just by the mere existence, life insurance gets better because it exists, right? There's a startup cost that Nelson talked about um, that exists. You can't get around it. You can't get over it. You can mitigate it. And, and that's what the this construct is trying to avoid, any cost of startup. You want as much liquidity, and I agree with that. You want liquidity in the early years, no question. But you don't want to distort the policy to get artificial liquidity, right? And so- I'm just saying that it's the same concept as a reduced paid-up design. Why would you not pay or stop yourself from the ability to pay a premium when it's just become extremely efficient in year five, six, seven, or eight? I mean, it makes no sense. And people, the consumer, when they understand this, when they hear and they're educated uh, from, you know, intelligent people such as yourself and agents and advisors, when they see what that 90-10 or the 85-15 or the 80-20 construct does in the future compared to a properly structured and properly structured, I know that's a loose term. In mm-hmm. my opinion, the proper, proper structure is what an educated practitioner and an educated consumer determine what is in the consumer's best interest, right? So the structure is not the same for anyone. And how could they be unless you're identical twins, right? Um, exactly. I mean, I could, <laughs> we, just we just, I don't like when anyone gets on any platform and says, this is what you all need to do. The challenge yeah. with that is maybe it worked in one particular situation, but at the same time, that doesn't take into consideration your unique goals, your the the assets that you currently have, your age, your your timelines, the things that the different family members that you have working together in your own family unit. There's just so many factors that you really do need to be thinking about. All of that, it's not a one size fits all. So, I agree. So James, so James, uh, when this is this is what we espouse all the time, and what you just said is. You need to have uh, a very long conversation. First of all, why do you want to have an infinite banking uh, type of a policy, or in, or why do you want to have life insurance to begin with? You know, and have that deep conversation, and then you need to have a a good idea of a, the person's complete financial picture and their family goals, and and then you start talking to them about. With your goals in mind, these are the kind of attributes of a policy that I think would be good for you, and then present it and, and then remind them that this is an illustration. This is not the contract. Uh, I call it liar's poker all the time, James. You know, we can we can put something in front of them and and attempt to distort what's going to happen in the future because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, we can we can have a pretty good idea of of uh, economics if you understand macroeconomics that that is not going to stay exactly the way it's illustrated it never has in the 200 years of these you know mutual companies and i don't know why a person would think it's going to change going off into the future 
We're going to have increases in interest rates, thus increases in, in, in dividends. We're going to have decreases in interest rates, thus decreases in dividends. With the blended, with the blended situation, like you said, they can work beautifully in certain situ situations. And we do have companies that we use those with. Um, I do prefer to use the ones that have more of a guaranteed and have a term rider on it because it's easier to know what the future is uh, that way. Um, but can you comment on from your many years, because this is, this is where I was going with this. Um, we have, we have seen these illustrations and contracts with these mutual companies that have the term riders on them. And the illustrations might be 14 pages. Then you have the companies that have the blended PUAs and they might be pushed to 28 pages, doubling the amount. Why do they double the amount? Because they have to disclose the risk involved in the blended PUA. And then to take it one step further, which is, we're not talking about this in this particular podcast, then you get to an index universal life policy. And those illustrations are going to be in the 50 pages. And why again? Because the disclosure of the increased risk to the insured, not to the insured's company. And that's what James is talking about. People didn't get that little nuance there is the insurance companies are doing what's best for them. The insured is trying to do what's best for them, but it's a contract. So both sides are going to get what they want. The, the larger, in my opinion, the larger the contract or larger the uh, illustration, which is not a contract, it's because of the disclosure, it removes the risk from the insurance company, thus they're getting what they want. And that is not explained enough. Whenever you have that, then you need an experienced person and a team to walk you through the entire life of that contract. And if you're going with somebody that is saying, well, this is so easy, we're just going to design like this, take over the... It's been my experience, James, in my many years of this business, and I bet it's your experience, is that people do not follow through with what they they're say they're going to do. They need an advisor. They need a producer that's going to help them through all this. And what, what my experience has been with these is now these, these people that are espousing this, oh, this is so simple. You can take over this, and there's going to be a lot of failures go, uh, down the road. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think we all need, you know, cheerleaders, coaches, uh, encouragers, especially when you get into the world of life insurance, even finance in general. But when you get into then life insurance, there's a whole debate of permanent versus term. And then the UL, which I understand this is not an inclusive uh, episode here, but there's, you know, every, every, it seems like, Everyone has a dog in the hunt. You know, the guy who writes equities, you know, they want to use term uh, or variable life or, you know, the annuity salesperson, which annuities are typically offered primarily through stock companies. Well, the all of the stock companies, you know, come out with life insurance, IUL, Index Universal Life, which you mentioned earlier. Um 
and so, and I agree with the um, the length of the illustrations. You know, it's like a prospectus in the investment world. You get one every year, but you're not going to read it because you don't like to read legalese, right? And the companies almost count on that. Um, I mean, who who wants to get up and read a 48 page life insurance illustration? Seriously, not me. But since you mentioned guarantees, and I kind of mentioned it earlier on the tabular detail, the section in the illustration that shows the guaranteed columns of numbers. If you pay this premium, the company guarantees an end-of-year value on the cash values and an end-of-year death benefit without dividends, right? And mutual companies pay the dividends, and, 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 you know, of course, the stock companies are owned by the shareholders. Mutual companies are owned by the policyholders. Um, but you go look at the 90-10 construct, the 95-5, the 85-15, and just compare out at age 120, at the end of 120, because all of life insurance is based on a theoretical life expectancy or lifespan of 120 years. So while you're looking at all of those numbers and being mesmerized by the first year, second year cash value, go ahead and go to the 120th year. Look at the guaranteed cash values compared to the non-guaranteed cash values. And these companies and these promoters that, that push that base down to nothing, right? And, and just look at the difference is my point. So if you're a consumer... And you're shopping around illustrations, which I think is the most inefficient and ineffective way to purchase life insurance to make a good decision. But if you have them, just compare the 120th year cash values from the guaranteed to the non-guaranteed. And when you see a five and seven and 10 times difference, you tell me if that life insurance company is going to pay that dividend. You tell me which in the future is absolutely unknown. But you just go forward in 120 years or how, you know, however many years it is to age 120 and you tell me what's most likely to occur. You're going to have the guaranteed cash value or that 10 times greater non-guaranteed cash value. And then since you uh, mentioned that the life insurance companies absolutely have their best interest in mind. Every business has, they're in existence for two reasons. I mean, if, 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 um, if my theory of capitalism is correct, to provide a service and be profitable. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, if I'm the owner of a company because it's a mutual company and I'm a policyholder, do I want my company to be profitable or yes. not? Yes, very profitable. So, okay, what's the problem? And then um, to if I speak, and I, uh, I prefer to, to engage with professionals, Right. No, it, what, no matter what it is, if I need something in the IT world, you know, in the medical field, um, on, on my home, I want to talk to somebody who's competent. I want to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. They're not going to practice on me. And I don't mind paying for their experience and their education. As a matter of fact, I would prefer that. Right. It's just like shopping. I went into a home decor place a couple of years ago with my wife in the, bright bubbly young person came up and they had their name tag on their shirt and the first thing out of their mouth and the right underneath the name tag was i don't earn commissions and right out of her mouth says i'm a non-commissioned person and i'm like well please go get the one who earns a commission <laughs> you know and she was so young she looked at me like i'm speaking a foreign language 
it's okay mm. to get paid, in my opinion. Right. Amen. So, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know, it's really, really interesting. We've had Mike McCallowitz on the show multiple times, and he has written the book Profit First. I'm sure you're familiar. And he talks about the value of being profitable and any good customer of any good business ultimately wants that business to be profitable so that they'll be around for the long term, 20, 30 years from now. I don't want my favorite stores going out of business. I don't want my favorite professionals closing their doors because they weren't profitable. And that's why we also want the life insurance company to be profitable. If it's a mutual company, that's going to come back to you in the form of dividends. And we also want the financial services professionals that serve you to be profitable as well so that they will be around for the long term. So I completely agree with that. I completely agree. Can you let's talk about this for just a minute? I think many times people get into whole life insurance in general because there's guarantees. Now all of a sudden we're saying, but if you morph and modify and change this infinite banking policy so much that it's really, I mean, like you called it a Frankenstein policy or a skinny base policy, or we're in a position now where we're saying this policy is not really an IBC policy. It is a modification of an IBC policy that is lacking guarantees. I just, I want to kind of flesh out that idea. I came to infinite banking because I wanted guarantees. I thought I was getting infinite banking. That's just better than infinite banking. That's a a skinny base policy. And I'm wanting this policy because it's guarantees and also all this early liquidity. But you're saying that I'm giving up liquid or I'm giving up guarantees, even though it's still whole life policy. Can we just comment on that for a second? Yeah. If I can go back to being in business a long time, I went to a volleyball game last night with my daughter and the, 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 and it's great to see all the, the, uh, the stands were full of people. Mm-hmm. And this lady grabbed my arm. She said, James, James. And I turned around and it was a client that I've had for over probably 15 years. She's let me introduce you to my son. Right. And she told the son, this is James. And, and she's like, this is the man you call whenever I die. Right. So oh, I just got chills. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you think she wants me to be profitable or unprofitable? And I close my door so the, the son can call the home office of a life insurance company 3000 miles away. You know, I don't know, but we can ask her <clears throat> and then Great talk question. about <clears throat> talk about guarantees. Rachel, Let, think this through. The whole life policy, it's referred oftentimes to the base, right? The base policy the base whole life policy, upon which we put the riders, the PUA rider, the term rider, waiver premium, or whatever other riders you're putting on that base whole life insurance policy. All right? Okay. And then you hear also, excuse me, you hear a lot of times, well, the the cash values grow at a guaranteed 4% or 5%, which is hogwash. Yep. Okay. We talk about that all the time, James. It's absolutely hogwash. It is a component in a formulary to price life insurance. And taken out of context, and just because I can point to the life insurance policy and, and possibly the illustration, but I can absolutely point to the life insurance policy and it says, oh, this policy is built on a 4% basis of guarantees. That does not mean you're going to earn 4% on the cash values, right? Okay. Yes. Now, the cash value of a whole life policy must grow contractually. It must increase every year to equal the face amount at age 120. All right now, the face amount is also growing from mm-hmm. the day you put the policy in force. That face amount is going to go one way up to age 120 on a theoretical lifespan. And that cash value 
must equal that face amount at age 120. Now, I, we're not getting above third grade math. You tell me, do you want a small death benefit at age 120 or a large death benefit at age 120? That is a good question because I think most people don't consider it. But everyone, ultimately, I think if we are really honest, we want as large of a death benefit as we can have. That's why we started the policy in the first place. Beneath all the bells and whistles. I will say this, and James and I are about the same age. James, I'm much younger than you. Well, I said about the same age. Okay. (laughs) Um, As we get older, the death benefit becomes more and more important. And people, it's hard to get that through to people. And, you know, we have had uh, cases where a person, you know, can't, can't conceptualize and can't understand the value of paying the premium for as long as possible. And so then we will say to them, well, by contract, you could do a reduced paid up, but why would you? Because we show them the efficiencies, so on and so forth. But in order to show that, we show the we show them the reduced paid up. But then when they see the death benefit go from X to, and drops down, they're like, well, I don't want to do, I don't want that death benefit to go down. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I thought you said, I thought you said you didn't want to pay for this the entire time. Well, I don't, because I don't know if I can, but I also don't want the death benefit to go down. It's kind of a, it's a conundrum in people's minds that, they don't want the death benefit because they say, well, it's going to be expensive and that, but then when they see it, they see it in actuality. They're like, yes, I want that. Now just let that sink in a little bit. That's what James says all the time. Just let that sink in a little bit. And, and that is the truth because people, how much life insurance would you want if you didn't have to pay for it? Well, people say it all the time. Well, I'd, I'd have as much as possible. Well, there comes a time in these well-designed life insurance policies that you're actually having the cash value grow at a greater rate than what it's actually paying for the life insurance. And But it, that doesn't happen overnight. That's the long-term thinking uh, that James is talking about. So yes, the life insurance death benefit it has to be considered when people are talking about this. And the best way to get that guaranteed for the rest of your life is the get as much base as possible. James, I here's a great example. I just had a guy the other day um, up in Minnesota said, hey, uh, you know, I, I want this infinite banking concept, but I want to get as much death benefit as possible. And I said, you want as much guaranteed death benefit as possible? He said, yes. And I said, well, we should do an all base policy then. And he's like, okay, well, let's do it. You know, and, and it's, and that gets down to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show. You can't espouse one way of doing things for everybody in the uh, in in the whole wide world, because if you're doing it, you're doing a disservice to the general public, as far as I'm concerned. I completely agree. I completely agree. You know the uh, the idea. Look, the the average 25 year old that I speak to, that I speak with. Um, they have a hard time seeing themselves at age 50 or 55. And what's new? When I was 30, man, was, I didn't think I'd live to 50. Oh, right? I, I remember thinking 40 was way too old and I never <laughs> wanted to be there. Now I'm, you know, looking at that on my horizon saying, uh, you know, I'm almost there. So. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? Every decade gets better, Rachel. So it's okay. All right. I agree, awesome. James. I agree. Awesome. It has you know, so far. It, it, it'll continue. I'm telling you. And so, um, 
it's it's absolutely true. The older we get, the more altruistic we become, right? We mm-hmm. think about our grandchildren, our children, even our great grandchildren that we may not have the opportunity to ever meet, mm-hmm. right? But we yeah, want and- to leave them in a better position that we were mostly. And if that's not the way you think, you're probably not a good fit for the infinite banking concept either. If you don't think yes. about others, you know, yes. it's it's probably not ever going to feel right for you, in my opinion. Uh, James, that was perfect. So it was interesting. I know we were on a trajectory to answer that. I came to IBC for guarantees. Now there's not as many guarantees. We can come back to that for in just a second. But what's really interesting, you said something there that most people who are younger, you and Bruce both were talking about, if you're younger, you don't normally value the death benefit. I can say from firsthand experience, and many people who've listened to our show know that I almost died. It's been about a year and a half ago now, or two and a half years ago when my second daughter was born. And I waking up in ICU, not knowing where I was, realizing it had been four hours, hearing that I'd lost a lot of blood, hearing that I almost didn't make it. There was a 50% survival chance hearing that my husband had been told that I might not make it. There was just a different awareness of the gravity of my own life. A, I was meant to be here, but B, everything matters that you do right now. And life is not a guarantee. I didn't go in with any expectation of sickness. I had no idea I would have ended up there just a few hours before. And my husband in those night, in that night, he was holding our newborn baby and saying, oh my goodness, what am I going to tell the girls? But thank goodness we have life insurance. And even though that was like this tiny side, probably 2% of the brain capacity that he was thinking of because the rest of his mind was being used up with this. Oh my goodness, this is a really terrible, scary situation. Just that tiny thread of hope of knowing we have as much life insurance as we can possibly get on both of our lives that gave so much peace of mind of realizing, you know, none of us are guaranteed to live out our life expectancy. And we all hope that we do. And I hope that I've got 70 plus years left, but at the same time, we don't have that guarantee. And we do need to make sure that the moments that we live right now are leaving that legacy so that exactly as you said, generations past us can benefit from the decisions we make today. And that's what life insurance is all about. And I was going to segue into, you were saying there's all, everyone has a, a horse in the race. I, I, you might've said it a little differently, but you know, the equities, the the IUL people, the IBC people. And so how does a consumer then say, what do I, how do I get what I really want to fulfill my ultimate goals? And I think that really comes down to saying, what do you want as a person? Do you want a long-term legacy? Do you want to make sure that you're doing the most with your money? That capitalization isn't a problem because you are thinking long-term. That is the person who would be looking at infinite banking. And I guess the, the question that I was coming at is, if you're the consumer and you're just standing in the middle of this, I don't know, it can feel like a maze sometimes. You just want to do better financially. And here you hear this and you hear this over here and everyone's saying something different and and everyone has you know a different pitch for their different product. How do you make sense of all of that noise and really do what's best for you? And I think it comes down to finding the person who resonates with exactly what your goals are. But do you have anything else that you would like to share on that? Yeah, I think that was very powerful. Thanks for, uh, I had no idea of your background. I appreciate you sharing oh, wow. that. Um, you know, I Thank think you. that uh, what I see typically is, you know, you, 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 
we're engaged with the individual who just researches to the nth degree, and they're just mm-hmm. looking for the truth, right? In my mm-hmm. opinion, they're just seeking the truth. They want to be aware. They want to make a good decision. Um, so if we're talking about the infinite banking concept, I think the source, the original source, is the correct place to start. Mm-hmm. Right. Nelson's becoming your own book, becoming your own banker book, his second book, building your warehouse of wealth and some of the other works that are available at the Nelson Nash Institute. And I get it. There's a whole lot of uh, videos and, and medium available to the consumer. And I know Bruce can attest to this. You know, 16 years ago, there was Nelson Nash traveling the country, delivering 10 hour talks. And if you Mm -hmm. weren't there or you didn't read his book, you were not exposed to this idea. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And I understand, too, that most a lot of people don't like to read or they don't have time to read. But there's a lot of media available at the Nelson Nash Institute. And I think that that's a decent place to start. Now, I'm not saying that's the only place, but if I want to learn a concept and I don't go to the source, I'm, there's no telling what kind of rabbit hole I would go down. But that's I, very true. So I see, uh, then there's guys like me, you know, that is like, man, I'm, if it looks good and, you know, I'm, I'm not walking around brain dead, right? If it looks good, I mean, I'm more uh, compulsive, right? I heard, I read Nelson's book the first night I read it. I called him the next day and I had, it was sitting on my shelf for months before I even read it. And it was like, oh my gosh. And I went and listened to him the first opportunity that I had, which was a couple of weeks later, come home and I restructured all my life. I was all in, right? I was all mm-hmm. in. I bought policies, uh, that 16 years later, they're barely cash on cash premium and, uh, and, uh, cumulative premium, cumulative cash value, direct recognition company. Heck, they don't even pay dividends. Let's be honest, right? But I still have them. I still pay substantial premium because what you can't see on those illustrations is all the automobiles, the European vacations that I'm a, I'm a country boy from Johnson County, Texas, taking my family to Europe. You're, are you crazy? I mean, that's unbelievable. So all of these things, you can't see the real estate, the remodeling, the things that we've enjoyed financing over the last 15, 16 years. It shows up nowhere on that life insurance illustration. And yes, now I'm getting older. I could care. I don't want to say I could care less. If I think if you're not, uh, having to justify the death benefit you're asking for from an underwriter, you're probably not thinking big enough. Amen. Uh, so That's as, good. <laughs> as I grow or age, um, the cash value is a cash value. I don't need anything artificial in my life. And I sure as heck don't need to contort the most powerful thing I've ever seen in the financial world. So I can make numbers match in a year or two or three. Right. So that is so good and so right. true. The cash value is a cash value. And I know it's going to grow on a guaranteed basis with solid 100 plus year old companies that are, if there's a financial meltdown in North America, these life insurance companies will be the last ones standing. <laughs> so yes. it's like, okay, what's wrong with that? And, and just because I'm having birthdays doesn't mean that I'm going to want less cash or I don't want to pay a premium. You know, my, uh, my desires are not going to change. You know, if I'm, if I like real estate, I'm probably going to like it even more. And then I'm probably going to even be more experienced, right? And whatever yeah. I'm putting my hand to. And so if I'm more experienced and I want to do more, it's going to take more capital, 
I mean, exactly. So I love that you explained the difference of the person who's the researcher versus the person who's all in quickly. And that would describe my husband and I, he's the person that wants to ask all the questions and understand something fully. And I am very conceptual, big picture. And yes, if it sounds good and I check all the quick boxes, I'm going to say, let's go ahead and do this. And I think sometimes people have different perspectives and they have different reasons for doing something. But I think you really just highlighted that idea that we can have a place to store cash that has a lot of safety, that has a lot of guarantees, that has a lot of liquidity, that has a lot of ability to leave a legacy that is the best place that we know of to store cash and leave a legacy and get all these other benefits and the best way to structure that is the way that is going to give you the best of everything, not just tomorrow. So I'm, I'm glad you said that. So, so, so James, um, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. There's a lot of information on the internet. I just don't think there's a lot of wisdom mm-hmm. and wisdom is what you get when you make mistakes. And Nelson was in this industry for a long, long time. And luckily he passed, I believe, a lot of his wisdom along along to you and I. And I'm still trying to gain wisdom. I mean, the the next think tank, I'm gonna go right to, if you're speaking, I'm gonna go right to your your, uh, talk and and listen to you. But also because I'm going to be listening to the, the other practitioners talk to you during your talk and we're going to we're going to interact back and forth back and forth and try to make things better and better and better and that's what we do at the nelson nash institute with a lot of fine people and i tell people all the time you know not that there aren't producers out there or agents out there that cannot do this concept without being a certified practitioner but i think you're rolling the dice when you're doing that, because we, Rachel and I have experienced this along with the other advisors with us have experienced almost on a weekly basis, somebody coming to us and saying, can you look at this? And they've already put it into place and they've asked for an infinite banking type policy. And I, you probably experienced this too. And the person had no idea what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And so what I would just encourage the listeners to do is, is to, yes, Educate yourself very well, but remember, a lot of it's just information. There isn't a lot of wisdom. You know, I appreciate that. And, you know, Rachel, you help me. Like, I'll go off on tangents, right, and won't close my points from time to time on, you know, my little uh, podcast. But going back to the to the couple, you know, in your example where there's a researcher and then one that's more compulsive, right, mm-hmm. the researcher – will, in my opinion, actually wind up at the Nelson Nash Institute, right? Because they're digging for the truth, and that's mm-hmm. where the truth goes, right? Mm-hmm. And then the one that's compulsive, they should go to the Nelson Nash Institute because they're compulsive and look at the practitioners on there and then do their vetting as they choose however that process is for them. They're choosing a uh, practitioner to work with. So, I'm just saying all roads lead to the Nelson Nash Institute, in my opinion, if we're going to practice the infinite banking concept. And then my friend Joe Kane, you know Joe Kane, Bruce, I'm sure. Um, He said that uh, because you hear a lot of that research, research, and I'm just I'm throwing that around too, research, research. And he asked one time and I give him credit and I 
ask all the time, if Christopher Columbus did a bunch of research before he set out in 1492, what would his research have told him? It would have told him that the world was probably flat. So in fact, then, that's not research. Just because we go on Google and go down all these rabbit trails on social media does not constitute research. It's more clearly or akin to uh, a gathering of the consensus, right? So if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go somewhere uh, and get quote unquote research from people who write IULs, right? Uh, Equity Index Universal Life or Index Universal Life, I, I'm gonna gather their consensus, right? If they have a loan provision, sure, I can collateralize a, a, an account value, so. Oh, you can borrow against it, so it's banking. That does not mean it's they're practicing the infinite banking concept. So, so my point is a couple that all roads I think lead to the Nelson Nash Institute. So, if you do your research prior to, I think your research is going to lead you there. If you're more compulsive like I am and you make a purchase, um, you should go there and vet the practitioners there. It's as a which, by point. the way. You will see both James and Bruce both listed as practitioners on that website, just saying. So if you work with our advisor team, you are getting an IBC practitioner and we're led by IBC practitioners. So just wanted to point that out. Yeah, perfect. And and so anyway, that was, you know, what I wanted to add to that, Rachel, and you helped me make that loop. Thank was you. there anything else you were wanting to add? Because you said a couple points and you started all roads lead back to IBC or to well, Nelson Nash. Well, no, that's my point. The the compulsive purchaser, mm-hmm. buyer, shopper should go there. That's the source. That's where the infinite well, banking concept was created. Yes. Right? And it's interesting that you even mentioned that because I look back in our history and first Lucas found out about infinite banking. We, we were studying the life insurance exam. We found out this little line about whole life and cash value and some guarantees. We're like, oh, that's really interesting. And then he started looking at infinite banking. That did lead us to Nelson Nash and his book. We both read it. And I was saying, yes, we absolutely want to do this from reading that book. And it was interesting that that then led us to meet Bruce. Um, We are at the top of our hour. We still could probably continue on for a long time. We've had a lot of um, commentary, mostly on YouTube. I just, and also some on Facebook. I will um, just mention a few of the comments. Thank you so much for everyone who's jumped in. Um, Michael Sparks said, seems like IBC is 90% understanding accounting. Same with paying back the interest. Interesting and good. Um, Paul Edward Stutzman, wish I could listen to this live. I'll catch it on YouTube later. When James talks IBC, everyone should listen. Very good. Um, I agree. Lucas Calvo says, great topic. A. Edward says, think long range. The longer the policy is enforced, the more efficient it gets. He was quoting us. And your wealth has to reside somewhere. Nelson. Nelson. He was quoting Nelson. A skinny base will limit funding in the later years uh, with a sad face. So very good. Andrew Good, who we know. What a great trio. Um, Aladita had some commentary about tier one or tier two mutual companies. And I think we've mostly answered that here. Um, Puzzleman P says, great podcast. One, will you do a real comparison of IBC through IULs versus whole life? Two, if a client wants to start IBC is 50 year old diabetic male with adult children ages 23 and 21. Should she, should he ensure his child? Question mark. Puzzleman, thank you for the question. Um, I would encourage you to go over to themoneyadvantage.com and book a conversation. Lots is going to depend for you. Um, I do want to 
um, go ahead and let you know that often we will say you want to think about insuring yourself first, but you do have the ability to insure someone else who have who you have insurable interest in. It just sometimes there's questions and conversation about should you insure someone else if you have the ability to get life insurance, you should insure yourself first. Um, you could possibly talk about a spouse. You can talk about children as well, but sometimes they need to have um, the insure. You may not have insurable interest on an adult child. We have a whole episode on insuring kids and grandkids. So we'll try to um, post that link in the show notes here. Is there anything either of you guys want to say about that question? Uh, well, I would just say that oftentimes, and we can go down another rabbit hole and we'll go, but oftentimes people do get bothered by having a rated policy and a diabetic is going to have difficult time well, I'm not a difficult, an impossible time getting a standard policy, in, in my opinion. But rated policies are not necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, James and I used to be with a uh, practitioner. Well, I don't think he was a practitioner, but a, a producer. He used to say he would love to have rate. He would. He loves selling rated pro, uh, policies because that person's gonna gonna die. So he wants to. He wants to actually. He wants to actually say to you, "Hey, they think you're gonna die. You better put this in place." Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. We're getting this whole thing about tier one and tier two. I'm not even sure where they're going with this. Um, but I think there's, there's this idea that if you don't do business with life insurance companies out of the state of New York, then you're not doing business with the right companies. And I would just like to say, if anybody understands capitalism uh, and regulations, that's the reason why a lot of companies do not want to do business in the state of New York. And a lot of times this is also because they're saying, well, they, they, actually, they actually hold the, the, the line on commissions because the state of New York actually caps commissions. But what they don't understand, and I bet you James has been recruited by some of these companies because I have, what they don't understand, they do cap commissions, but they make up a... Other ways, like they give you a marketing budget or they give you your own um, office or they'll give you retirement plans or they'll give you health insurance. <laughs> they compensate you. And for you just to say, well, they're capital commissions, so you better work with them is very naive when it comes to a capitalistic uh, environment. What do you think about that, James? As we I, get, I agree with you. End? And I think it's uh, <clears throat> the people who promote the tier one and tier two, you know, you know, they're going to say whoever they write for is a tier one company and it's hogwash. Exactly right. Just right. like the capitalist black money, you know, it's like we get recruited all the time. I won't even talk to the home office of most of the life insurance companies. Don't misunderstand me. I'd rather talk to clients and prospective clients and educate them, not the life insurance industry. I don't want to educate them. Um, so I completely agree with you. That's a false, it's a red herring. It's a false argument. So I've got to beat you up, financial advisor. So you, the consumer, can move your money with me and I'm going to disparage right. them any way possible. You know, commissions, tier one, tier two, how, whatever uh, they say. It's Dividend, like a, dividends, whatever. They yeah, up. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then... Uh, I would say on the on the the uh, diabetic, or we all have a health history. We all use Western medicine. The life insurance companies use Western medicine to go through underwriting, right? Just because you pay a premium doesn't mean you can have it. You got to qualify for it health wise. But I would say this: you have one opportunity if you're insurable 
right? The older we get, that opportunity diminishes. So you have a limited opportunity, better said, to get insurance in place on yourself, right? And then you, for the listener, it's not good for you, but my disclaimer is this. If you buy a life insurance policy that's properly constructed and you don't want it, I will buy it from you. James, I say say that all the time. (laughs) I will buy it from you too. And people are just like shocked on that. Yeah, and, and if the premium is so big, I, I'll get with Bruce and borrow money from him, or we'll do a joint. Yeah, we'll put a consortium together. I'm uh, telling you, if together. you're insurable, go get the policy. Go read Nelson's book, and even distribution of age classes, page seventy seventy one. You can make that whole generational wealth transfer more efficient, starting on yourself if you're insurable. And just because you're diabetic doesn't mean you're uninsurable. Let the underwriters—that's what they do. Right. They do the underwriting. Let them tell you you're not insurable or maybe they'll tell you you are insurable up to that limit. And then, by golly, go buy right up to that limit. My opinion. And then, hey, James, and they might tell you you're uninsurable. Then James and I will go to the underwriter and, and fight for you to, to see if we can get you insurable. <coughs> and if really- we can't. Let me say, if we can't, let's, let's say that the, the gentleman's uninsurable in this example, we can uh, encourage the life insurance underwriters to transfer his un, un, his insurability to the spouse or to the children, right? So, and, it, and at the end of the day, if you're not insurable, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know? If there's something wrong with you, wouldn't you want to know so you have the opportunity to go correct it? So, I, there's nothing wrong with, you know, applying for life insurance and even the rated case, it's a moot point, right? That's an old argument in the life insurance industry. And then if you're uninsurable, then your insurability can be used on your spouse and your children and possibly even your grandchild. And then let me say, too, that for the listeners, you probably are unaware that when you start using the insurability of another person, I'm just telling you, you're working your advisor, your agent. Uh, pretty harshly. That takes a lot of time and effort and energy that the consumer doesn't typically see or they're not aware of. So I'm just saying that uh, if they're willing to go down that path, they're working hard for you, harder than you probably realize. So, sorry, All right, Rachel. Rachel, we better wrap. We better wrap this up. Or yes, I was going to say we had um, a little bit of commentary on. I'm working with an IBC practitioner, and so I just wanted to. I put in the link to where somebody would also find an IBC practitioner, and that is at infinitebanking.org backslash finder. So I just wanted to make sure that if there can be anybody should nobody should do this, but anybody could say I am an IBC practitioner. And unless you are on that website, you are not formally an IBC practitioner. I will be in full disclosure. I personally am not, although Bruce is on our team. So that's something that I will eventually do. I love the training and education that comes out of everything with the Nelson Nash Institute and the infinite banking certification program. So um, we have other advisors on our team who are as well, but just wanted to make sure that was clarified. If you are interested in exploring this more fully, um, whether you have piped into this conversation live or you're listening after this conversation has already been aired, we invite you to hop on over to themoneyadvantage.com. And for the sake of discussion as well, James, how do our listeners find you if they're interested in finding you and your podcast? Bankingwithlife.com. Go on to YouTube, Google my name, James Nethery or Banking With Life. Awesome. 
Thank you so much, James, for joining us today. I know this was a, a collaborative conversation, very unique to you and us and our dynamic that we have here, but at the same time, very beneficial, I think, for anyone who's tuned in. And we've had more people watching the entire time than we've ever seen on a show. So um, wow. really, really exciting. I know that there's a lot of practitioners who follow our, our podcast and many who follow you as well. So thank you so much for being with us today. Um, James, thank you for listening today. In closing, please remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Perfect. Thanks. I had fun. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.